1: And away we go. Episode 33 of the Al Galdi podcast. It is Tuesday, April 6, 2021. Yes, episode 33. Patrick Ewing's number. I used to own Ewing's back in the day. Patrick Ewing high tops, sneakers. You ever have those massive 33s on the backs of those? I had Jordan's back in the day and I had Ewing's. And I tell you what, I actually enjoyed the Ewing's more just because they were different. I mowed the lawn in my Ewing's for years after the Ewing's went out of style. I missed those shoes. I wish I could find those shoes. Anyway, episode 33 of this podcast. It is opening day, part two for the Nationals. We do believe, finally, mercifully, that the Nats will be beginning their regular season on Tuesday. It is also the day after which we have crowned a national champion in college basketball and so much for an all-time classic between the two behemoths this season. One seeded Baylor versus one seeded Gonzaga at Lucas Oil Stadium in India turned out to be a total flop. Baylor blasting the Zags, routing the Zags, making the Zags humble. Make him humble. Yes, cheeky baby, make him humble. Baylor made Gonzaga humble. Did you see that coming? Because I sure did not, you know, off the classic, the all-time five-star epic that we got on Saturday night the Gonzaga overtime win over UCLA we get what we got in the national championship game on Monday night 86-70 the final and the final doesn't even tell the full story Baylor never trailed Baylor begin the game on an 11-1 run Baylor led by double digits for most of the second half just total annihilation make you mumble yes cheeky baby Thank you. Two things of particular note about Baylor. Uh, first is this. So, of course, Baylor smashed Houston in the Final Four, 78-59 on Saturday evening. Baylor is just the fifth school ever to win both the Final Four game and the National Championship game by more than 15 points. Uh Joins Villanova in 2018, UCLA in 1968, Ohio State in 1960, and Kansas in 1952. That's it. This does not happen often, that you smash your opponent in the national semis and then you smash your opponent in the national championship game. And yet Baylor just pulled that off. The other factoid of note is this. So since seeding began in the NCAA tournament since 1979, Baylor in 2021, just the third team to win the national championship without any McDonald's All-Americans. The first team to do this in terms of since seating began in 79, Maryland in 2002. One of the great aspects of that Terrapins National Championship team, 2002. Zero McDonald's All-Americans. Uh, UConn in 2014 did this as well. But you see, it's a lesson for everyone out there. Talent matters only so much. I hope Mark Turgeon was paying attention on Monday night. Remember, after Maryland got ripped by Alabama in the second round, the turds saying that this season's Terps team was not a Final Four team. Yeah, maybe not on paper, but that doesn't mean that you can't achieve more than the talent says you're supposed to achieve. Anyway, speaking of the turds, off his glorious weekend with the extension, with the landing of the two transfers in Kudus Wahab and Fats Russell, some bad news on Monday. Daryl Morsell may be transferring, or he may be leaving for the NBA, or we could actually be back. It's a little confusing. We're going to get into that and a whole lot more. I will talk Nationals as we appear to now know who will be out to begin their season due to COVID-19 protocols. And sadly, the Nats are set to be without multiple key players. Speaking of COVID-19, I have for you on this Tuesday installment of the Al Galdi podcast, a proper rant, a proper scolding for the mayor of Washington, D.C., Muriel Bowser, for her continued disallowing of fans at Capitals and Wizards games at Capital One Arena. Boy, are Ted Leonsis and Monumental Sports and Entertainment not happy about this. And I don't blame them. I don't blame them one bit. I am 100% Team Teddy on this one. The Jets, they traded Sam Darnold to Carolina on Monday. Now that we know what he went for, do you wish that the Washington football team had traded for Darnold? Uh, I do not wish for that. I'll explain why and give you some more thoughts off the Darnold trade. That's coming up in just a bit. I have an update on something I talked about a bunch on Monday's podcast, the ending of the big money relationship between the Washington football team and Innova. And I do believe we now know the reason for that ending. The Wizards, how about them on Monday night? While Baylor was crushing Gonzaga, the Wizards were blowing a 19-point third-quarter lead and losing on a three as time expired. What else is new with the Wizards? The damn Washington Wizards! Yes, thank you, Stephen A. And the Orioles, they like Gonzaga on Monday night. Humbled big time. Uh, Game one of a three-game series at the Yankees that doesn't seem like it's going to be going as swimmingly as that season-opening three-game sweep at Boston. Lots to do on the show as you might expect. You can tweet me at algaldi, you can email me the algaldi podcast at yahoo.com. So I on Monday morning at 10:18 Eastern received an email from podcast partnerships at pandora.com. Congratulations, algaldi. The algaldi podcast is available on Pandora. And I had to read that multiple times to like let it sink in because the way it works when you start a podcast is you have to submit for it to become available on all this very all these various platforms. So, you know, like Apple Podcasts, which is how most people listen to this podcast, Google Podcasts, Spotify, TuneIn, Stitcher, et cetera. But you know, you apply and then you get approved like, you know, a day or two later, something like that, maybe three days, you know. But it's like it's never really more than three or four days to get approval, okay? I submitted to get this podcast on the Pandora a month and a half ago. Like I started this podcast in late February. Today is Tuesday, April 6th. And I just got the email yesterday, April 5th, that the podcast got approved by Pandora. Now, I am not a Pandora user, but I know some people are. That's why I wanted the podcast up on Pandora. But what exactly is going on with Pandora? Like what is, what is the vetting process for Pandora. I mean, my God, the scrutiny must have been unreal. What, what, Pandora, what exactly did you need to know about me or this show? Like, what were you trying to find out about me or this show? I got nothing to hide, man. I'm an open book. I'm as transparent as can be. But like, I mean, people applying to work for the CIA go through less scrutiny than what this podcast just went through to get on Pandora. So anyway, we are on Pandora. So if you prefer to listen to this podcast that way, have at it. But there are many ways to take in what we do. And all we care about is that you do take in what we do. And thousands of you every day are taking in what we do. And uh, appreciate that very much. All right. Life is about decisions. The Washington football team this offseason made a decision not to trade for Sam Donald. Was that the right decision? I think we now know more than ever. The answer is yes. And look, I say the answer is yes, knowing Darnold could light it up for the Panthers. And if he does that, we are going to look back upon this and say, hmm, maybe our team should have traded for Sam I am in that 2021 offseason. But as things stand right now, yes, I am totally fine with our Washington football team not having traded for Sam Darnold. So the Jets on Monday dealing Darnold to Carolina for three draft picks, a sixth round pick in the 2021 draft and second and fourth round picks in the 2022 draft. So Darnold ultimately goes for a two, a four, and a six. Not bad, all things considered, where you were at right now, if you're the Jets. But the key phrase there is, right now. This still is a complete and total debacle from a Jets perspective. Remember, the Jets didn't just take Darnold with the number three pick in the 2018 NFL draft. The Jets traded up to take Darnold with the number three overall pick in the 2018 draft. The Jets in March 2018 traded their 2018 first round pick, number six overall, two 2018 second round picks, and a 2019 second round pick to the Indianapolis Colts for their 2018 first round pick, number three overall, which which the Jets used on Darnold. So the Jets to go from six to three in the 2018 draft traded away that six overall pick and three second round picks to the Colts Use that pick on Donald. Donald was really bad over the last three seasons. And then on Monday, the Jets traded Donald to the Panthers for a two, a four, and a six. That's not what we call winning, my friends. You know, I saw a good bit of praise for the Jets on Monday saying, hey, they got more for Donald than we thought they'd get. Okay, fine. But big picture, you take a step back, this is still a complete mess for the Jets in that they traded up to three to take Donald. He's bad for three seasons. And now do you get back for Donald a two, a four, and a six when you gave up to get Donald a one and three twos? Like, think about that for a moment. Now, when it comes to Donald and our team, the Washington football team, because that's what I care about the most, all right? I'm not really that interested in what this means for the Jets. So was Washington ever truly interested in Donald? And if so, to what extent was Washington interested in Donald? It's been a little confusing. So back on February 7th, NFL Media, which is a short way of saying NFL.com and NFL Network, said to expect Washington, quote, to weigh all quarterback options, including if Sam Darnold is made available, end quote. Then, of course, came Washington signing Ryan Fitzpatrick. But even after that, Washington potentially trading for Darnold remained a thing, at least according to this guy, Connor Hughes, the Jets insider for the Athletic New York. He, on March 16th, the day after the news broke that Washington had agreed on the contract with Fitzpatrick, tweeted that, quote, even after signing Ryan Fitzpatrick, I'm told Washington has not ruled out a trade for Sam Darnold, per sources. It's a bit more unlikely now, obviously, as WFT won't be willing to go as high as others in draft compensation, but they still have interest in the Jets quarterback, end quote. Now, that clearly reeked of intel coming from the Jets, And the Jets putting this out there so that they could spice up the price for Sam Darnold. And sure enough, Diana Rossini, NFL insider for ESPN, she tweeted later on that Tuesday, March 16th, that she had spoken to a Washington source about the team potentially still trading for Darnold and was told, quote, don't waste your time, end quote. Darnold gets traded on Monday And Washington football team insider J.P. Finley of NBC Sports Washington, he, right after the trade, tweeted the following, said that he had been told that Washington hadn't been very interested in Darnold. Quote, not looking for a reclamation project was a direct quote from somebody in Ashburn, end quote, after the team signed Ryan Fitzpatrick. So was Washington in on Darnold? It sounds like they maybe made a phone call or two. It sounds like they checked in on what it would cost to get him but I never got the sense that Washington was like hot and heavy after Sam Darnold. I think if you're Washington and you go into this offseason, right, and you have quarterback uncertainty and you want to add someone of consequence to the mix that includes Taylor Heineke and Kyle Allen, you exhaust all options. Like you make a bunch of calls. You see what it would take to get Sam Darnold. You see what it would take to get Marcus Mariota. You obviously go in on Matthew Stafford. As we know, Washington was in on Matthew Stafford, Ron Rivera, has admitted to that, you know you look at what it would take to trade up in the 2021 NFL draft like you have to examine everything so I think Washington definitely examined Sam Donald, but I don't think Washington was ever in love with trading for Sam Donald, and I don't blame Washington for that, and I especially don't blame Washington now that we know what the price for Donald ended up being a two, a four and a six like if you love the guy, a two a four and a six is not that steep of a price to pay. But if you're not sure about the guy, if you have real concerns and or doubts about the guy, then don't give up a two, a four, and a six. Draft picks aren't everything, but draft picks matter. And if you know what you're doing, you can turn a two, a four, and a six into three really good players. Maybe even more than that if you end up trading down. If you know what you're doing with the draft, these draft picks are glorious commodities. So I, I'm not, I've never been a big believer of just being in the business of, yeah, trade this pick, trade that pick. Like, no. Uh, If you know what you're doing, and that's like a big caveat to all this, right? You need to know what you're doing. You need to be good at the draft. But if you're good at the draft, I mean, especially something like a second round pick, that can be invaluable to a franchise. Now, we all know for our team, second round picks have been anything but invaluable. It's been one screw up after another with Washington's second round picks in recent years. I mean, the list by now, everyone is aware of, but the list remains a jaw dropper, right? I mean, just working backwards, these recent Washington second round picks, Darius Geis, Ryan Anderson, Sua Cravens, Preston Smith. Okay, he was good, but Trent Murphy, David Amerson, Jarvis Jenkins, the trifecta in 2008, Devin Thomas, Fred Davis, and Malcolm Kelly. Thank you, Vinny Serato. Like it's been a brutal run for Washington with the second round picks, but that's not a reason to just give away second round picks. That's not a reason to trade away second round picks. That's a reason to be better at executing your second round picks. But yeah, especially now that we know the price at which the Panthers acquired Darnold, I'm even more comfortable with Washington not having traded for Sam Darnold. You you see with Darnold, it's very simple. Yes, he has been a part of a major mess in that of the Jets, okay? The Jets have been one of the worst franchises in the NFL, maybe the worst franchise in the NFL for years. And their head coach the last two seasons, Taco Eyes, Adam Gase, uh, his reputation has plummeted with what's gone down over the last few years, no doubt. But Darnold's performance and Darnold's body of work over his first three NFL seasons is really bad. And it's bad to a point to where you can't just write off the bad to having been a product of Gase and the Jets. Like, you're being too generous to Donald if you just say, yeah, well, look, Adam Gase, New York Jets, uh, this isn't his fault, Donalds." Like, no, it's not as simple as that. You're ignoring a lot of stuff with Donald if you just sit here and excuse everything we've seen over the first three seasons of his career to his environment. The numbers for Donald have been brutal. 38 regular season games, 45 touchdown passes, versus 39 interceptions, 6.64 yards per pass attempt, a completion percentage of just 59.8, and total QBRs per ESPN in the 40s in each season, including ranking dead last out of 33 qualified quarterbacks for the 2020 regular season at 40.1. Yes, no quarterback was worse this past NFL season in terms of qualified QBs than Sam Darnold when viewed through the lens of the best one-stop shop stat out there when it comes to evaluating quarterback play, QBR. Also with Darnold, and I've brought this up and I feel like this doesn't get mentioned enough, he has not been durable. Like it's not just that he struggled, it's that he's also had a hard time staying healthy. He's missed at least three games in each of his three seasons, including in his 2018 rookie season, when he missed three games due to a foot injury, and this past season, when he missed four games due to a shoulder injury. So he hasn't been durable, and his most recent ailment, a shoulder ailment, uh, not exactly something that doesn't matter when it comes to being a quarterback. Could Darnold end up being great with the Panthers? Yes, like anything's possible, okay? After the rehab job that the Tennessee Titans have done with Ryan Tannehill. I'm open to just about anything these days in terms of someone finding himself somewhere else. And you look at the Panthers, their head coach, Matt Rule, I think he knows what he's doing. The offensive coordinator, Joe Brady, the guy who transformed Joe Burrow at LSU as LSU's passing game coordinator in 2019, I mean, yes, Donald is going into a situation that could end up being really good for him. And I think it does say something about Darnold that guys like Rule and Brady wanted to acquire Darnold. And especially if Darnold ends up being the Panthers QB1, Carolina, of course, does still have Teddy Bridgewater, at least for now, but he may be on the way out. like I think it does say something about Darnold. that The Panthers, instead of trying to trade up in the first round of the upcoming draft, instead of sticking with Teddy Bridgewater or getting somebody else's offseason, no, the Panthers decided to trade for Sam Darnold. So good for him. But I'm not just going to be sitting around waiting for him to blossom. I think there are a lot of questions still about what Sam Darnold is going to end up being. Now, I mentioned Teddy Bridgewater. There is an obvious connection for Teddy Bridgewater to the Washington football team. Teddy Bridgewater was with the Minnesota Vikings 2014 through 2017. Scott Turner was the Vikings quarterbacks coach 2014 through 2016. Bridgewater's name had already come up previously regarding, hmm, well, if he becomes available, maybe that's a veteran acquisition that makes sense for Washington this offseason. J.P. Finley on Monday also did tweet the following. Washington won't be calling on Teddy Bridgewater, some connections between Teddy B and WFT, but Washington is excited to roll with Ryan Fitzpatrick and young QBs this fall. Now that last part's kind of interesting, right? Young QBs. That obviously could simply mean Taylor Heineke and Kyle Allen. Also could mean someone you draft, right? And I do think Washington drafting a quarterback. Very much remains a possibility, although I still feel like the signing of Ryan Fitzpatrick uh, lessened the likelihood of Washington drafting a quarterback. But I'll tell you this, if I'm Washington, I'm still very open to drafting a quarterback. You should be. Like, you shouldn't just say, well, we're good to go for 2021 and whatever. Like, no, if you like especially someone available to you at 19, whether it's Kyle Trask or Kellen Mond or Jamie Newman or maybe someone like a Justin Fields Falls. I mean, it, it doesn't seem likely, but I don't know if you caught the latest mock draft by ESPN NFL draft analyst Todd McShay, but he did have Justin Fields falling to the New England Patriots at number 11. So, you know, Fields could fall to 11. Maybe he could fall to like 14 or 15 and maybe Washington could trade up to take Fields at 14 or 15. So I think you have to be very open-minded with this stuff. But seeing that tweet from JP on Monday, I again, found myself nodding my head in agreement of, yeah, you know, if you're asking me, would I rather have Bridgewater or Fitzpatrick? My answer is Fitzpatrick, especially because you don't have to give up anything to get Fitzpatrick. It's a mere one-year contract. That's it. You didn't sacrifice any assets to acquire Ryan Fitzpatrick. You know, all of these veteran quarterback options available via trade this offseason, whether it's Bridgewater, and you know, maybe he gets cut, we'll see, but whether it's Bridgewater or Darnold or Mariota. I've never been overwhelmed by any of them. I, I've never felt like, ah, oh, that's the guy. You know, I felt like, eh, all right, whatever, you know. And, and, and I've always felt like this. If Ron Rivera, Scott Turner and company feel like one of those guys can be the guy, then I think there is a benefit of the doubt I'm willing to give the WFT brain trust, at least at this point. Like, I'm willing to say, all right, uh, if you guys really do believe in the guy, let's see what the guy has. But just looking at things, I've never felt like any of these guys was a great option. And so when Washington signed Ryan Fitzpatrick, like initially I'm like, well, you know, he's older, like what really is he a path to? But looking at what he's been the last few seasons, I'm like, well, you're not giving up really anything to get him other than this one-year contract. He has been sneaky good to great, truthfully, over the last few seasons, right? Top 10 in QBR each of the last two years. And it's not necessarily that he has to be your starter in 2021. Like, I do think he's probably going to be at least your, you know, QB1 to begin the season. But it's not like you've invested so much in him to where, well, he has to be the guy and you're going to be playing an older guy at the expense of younger players. Like, we'll see how the season evolves. You know, I've continued to say this. I want an open, honest, good faith competition. Fitzpatrick versus Heineke versus Allen or, you know, someone who Washington drafts. You know, we'll see what the quarterback mix ultimately ends up being but it's not like you know you're locked into Ryan Fitzpatrick and you're obviously not locked into him beyond this season since you signed him to just a one year contract. So the more I look at not just Washington having signed Fitzpatrick, but what's gone on around the NFL with these other quarterback options that have been available this offseason, the more my feeling of satisfaction with Washington having signed Fitzpatrick is affirmed. Like You know, there's a thing in the offseason, right, where it's not just what you do, it's what other teams do. And then when the game of musical chairs stops or at the very least slows down, do you wish your team had done something else? I don't know about you, but here we are now almost a full month into free agency. And I don't sit here and say to myself, oh man, if only Washington had just waited a little longer when acquiring a quarterback. You could have done this, so you could have traded for that. It's like, no, I don't really have that feeling. You know, you look at the other free agent contracts that have been signed by veteran quarterbacks this offseason. I mean, would you have preferred Washington to have signed Andy Dalton? Chicago Bears game a one-year $10.5 million contract for overthecap.com. Washington got Fitzpatrick at one-year $10 million. I'd rather have Fitzpatrick than Dalton anyway, and Fitzpatrick came slightly cheaper. Would you rather Washington have signed Tyrod Taylor? He went to the Houston Texans, a one-year $5.5 million deal. I mean, you know, Tyrod's been okay, but I don't really see him as a road to much of anywhere. And I think with Fitzpatrick, again, sneaky, high-level play over the last few years. He doesn't get enough credit for this. So I can understand bringing him on board for at least a season. And at worst, he's a good, healthy part of your quarterback room. And he can help to bring along a younger quarterback or quarterbacks. Again, we'll see with the mix ultimately ends up being. Few more things on the Darnold trade, and this is going back to things from a Jets perspective. So how about the ineptitude of the Jets? Do you know the Jets trading away Darnold now leaves the Jets with not a single one of their 10 first round picks from 2010 through 2018? The Jets over those nine drafts had 10 first round picks. Not a single one of those guys is still on the Jets. I mean that's bad. That that is really, really bad. Like Washington as as many problems as our team has had, even Washington has multiple first round selections from that period twenty ten through twenty eighteen, right? Brandon Sheriff, first round pick in twenty fifteen. Jonathan Allen, first round pick in twenty seventeen, Duran Payne, first round pick in twenty eighteen. All those guys still on Washington and up until this offseason here, Ryan Kerrigan. Had still been with Washington. Uh, first round pick in 2011. Kerrigan, right, still out there in free agency. Uh, the free agent market has not been kind to Ryan Kerrigan so far. Not a lot of attention being paid to that, but uh, it's worth noting that. The other thing with the Jets is, man, have they had a hard time at quarterback over the years. I mean, they just cannot get the position right. The Jets still have not had a 4,000-yard passer since Joe Namath in 1967 when he, by the way, became the first 4,000-yard passer in NFL history. But how about that? A 53-season drought without a 4,000-yard passer. That is the second longest such drought in the NFL. The only one worse, that of the Chicago Bears, who have never had a 4,000-yard passer. But 4,000 yards passing, that, 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 that's not some like unbelievable achievement anymore. 12 quarterbacks each threw for at least 4,000 yards last season in the NFL. Even Washington, our team, with all of the quarterback problems, has had multiple 4,000-yard passers over the years. Jay Schrader in 86, 4,000-yard passer. Brad Johnson in 99, 4,000-yard passer. Our old pal, Kirk Cousins. I'm a little bit more process-oriented. Yes, Kirk, we know that. He reached the 4,000-yard passing plateau in each of three consecutive seasons, 2015-2016 and 2017, and yet here you have the Jets nary a 4,000 yard passer since Namath, since Broadway Joe in 1967, and this absolute wreck that ends up being the trade up to take Sam Darnold heightens that, highlights that further. The Jets' quarterback struggles continue. Obviously, New York now going to be spending that second overall pick on Zach Wilson at a BYU. And I like Wilson a lot. A lot of people like Wilson a lot. Joe Theismann is a huge Zach Wilson proponent. And I give Theismann credit. He was actually one of the first guys to be singing the praises of Zach Wilson. So we'll see. So we'll see. Uh But yeah, regardless of what happens with Wilson, the Darnold thing ends up being a complete whiff by the Jets. You trade up to take him number three overall, he gives you three seasons of bad play, and then you trade him away for pennies on the dollar. It's another example, again, of how these trade-ups into the top threes of NFL drafts to take quarterbacks just aren't working out. Whether you're talking Darnold or Jared Goff or Carson Wentz or Mitchell Trubisky or, of course, our guy, Robert Griffin III. Like, all of these recent trade-ups into top threes of NFL drafts to take quarterbacks have ultimately not worked out. And I say that even with Goff having helped the Rams get to a Super Bowl and Wentz having helped the Eagles to get to a Super Bowl. Of course, though, it was Nick Foles who did the work that postseason, but Wentz was very good that regular season. And yet even still, the Rams wanted nothing to do with Goff anymore. Philly wanted nothing to do with Wentz anymore. The Jets trading away Donald. The Bears not even exercising the fifth-year option in Trubisky's contract. Washington, of course, uh, exercising the fifth-year option in RG3's contract in a decision that still makes no sense to me, but ultimately releasing RG3. Like, these guys don't work out. These guys, they get taken by teams that traded up to take these guys, and then those initial teams want nothing to do with those guys moving forward. That's why, for those of you still streaming of, Washington still should be in on trying to trade up into the top four, top three of this upcoming draft to take a quarterback. I hear you from a standpoint of nothing matters more. Then quarterback, but look at the recent history. It's been one whiff after another and the Jets trading away. Darnold cements yet another whiff when it comes to this. So on Monday's podcast, we spent a lot of time discussing the parting of the ways between the Washington football team and Innova. Innova is a nonprofit health system based in Falls Church, Virginia. Anova on Friday announced that Anova has, quote, made the decision to discontinue its medical team's role as the team physicians for the Washington football team, end quote. And this was very significant. Washington had hired Dr. Robin West, the medical director of Anova Sports Medicine, as the team's director of sports medicine in June 2016. It was West who had served as the lead physician and surgeon for Alex Smith over his 17 surgeries, on the right leg. And it was Anova that had been a major sponsor for the Washington football team in recent years. Heck, the team's headquarters in Ashburn, Virginia, is known as the Anova Sports Performance Center. And so I talked about the meaning of this, talked about what may have been behind this. Was this another example of Ron Rivera's godfather-like baptism of fire? Ron ousting those he no longer wants as a part of the Washington football team. Ron truly putting his imprint on the Washington football team. Was this related to the many post-surgery infections that Washington had dealt with in recent years? Not just the Alex Smith situation, but the Colt McCoy situation, the Darius Guy situation, all of the medical staff slash training staff complaints that we'd heard about, you know, Trent Williams, Morgan Moses, Quentin Dunbar, etc. cetera. What exactly was behind this divorce between the Washington football team and DeNova? And thank you to many of you I think we now have a much clearer picture of what happened here. There are many reasons that I always give out to you my Twitter handle at Al Galdi and the email address for this podcast, the Al podcast at yahoo.com. And one of the reasons is individually, we all may be stupid, but collectively the throbbing brain that is the listenership for this podcast makes up an entity of high intellect, right? The notion of crowdsourcing, how individually, we all may be flawed, but together, our brain power can be such that we can accomplish great things. So I always want your input on things because maybe I'm not seeing things clearly. Maybe I'm not looking at things in the exact right way, or maybe I'm just not aware of something that you guys are aware of. And so, Thank you to Andrew Weissel, Jared Rosen, and JT for emailing me. Thank you to Brendan Langdon and Vince Griffin for tweeting me. There is a Dwight Shaw connection to all of this and this may well be why there is this divorce happening between the Washington football team and Innova. So, the announcement from Innova that it has again, quote, made the decision to discontinue its medical team's role as the team positions for the Washington football team and quote again, that came on Friday. What else happened on Friday? Dan Snyder buying out his three disgruntled minority investors in the Washington football team, Dwight Schar, Robert Rothman, and Fred Smith, became official. Okay, now the news of this broke the previous week. We learned on Wednesday at the virtual NFL annual league meeting that the NFL owners had voted to approve Danny buying out Shaw Rothman, and Smith. And remember, the reporting is that the NFL owners gave unanimous approval 32-0 approval of all of this. And keep in mind, this included Danny buying out the disgruntled minority investors at the discounted price of $875 million and Danny getting a special $450 million debt waiver. So that news breaks on Friday. And then later on Friday, yes, the Innova Washington football team divorce is made public. Okay, part of the Innova health system is something called the ANOVA-Shar Cancer Institute. It is named after, yes, Dwight Shar. May 2015, we learned that Dwight and his wife Martha donated $50 million to build what became the ANOVA-Shar Cancer Institute. It was, of course, Shar who the Danny claimed helped to fund the smear campaign against the Danny in the summer of 2020. So, yeah. This would seem to be why Washington and ANOVA are parting ways. Shaw is a big money backer of ANOVA. And Anova either decided we're going to display our loyalty to Shar and the $50 million donation of a few years back. And we're just going to part ways with Washington. Or Danny and Washington said, the heck with Shar, the heck with his Inova. We're parting ways with you. And maybe just Inova put it out there that Anova had made the decision. Or maybe both sides decided, the heck with each of you. Screw you. No, screw you. We're done doing business with each other. Yes, uh, that a 100% makes sense. The Char factor and all this. Now, there could be more to this than just that. Like, it may be that Ron Rivera doesn't think that Anova is all that. It may be that Ron Rivera looks at all the training staff slash medical staff stuff of the last few years and isn't overly impressed, doesn't like all the controversy, and feels like Washington can do better. But no doubt, the timing is impossible to ignore. The day on which Danny buying out Shaw, Rothman, and Smith becomes official, official, Anova announces. It's parting ways with the Washington football team. Although keep in mind, remember that statement from Anova did say that the relationship will continue in the 2021 season. Anova will remain a sponsor for the Washington football team for the 2021 season. You know, it's also interesting with Schar. He's actually the guy who got Joe Gibbs to come back in 2004. So a piece came out last July 8th from Washington football team insider John Keim of ESPN about the dynamics of the Washington football team's ownership group. And in that piece, we found out Shar got the ball rolling for the shocking return of St. Joe in 2004. Shar called Gibbs two days after the end of the 2003 season, that second of the two Steve Spurrier seasons. And Shar was on the board of Gibbs's Youth for Tomorrow Foundation. So the two had a very strong relationship. So yeah, Dan Snyder closed the deal. But it was Shar who got the ball rolling on Joe Gibbs coming back in 2004. So, you know, Shar has not just been some silent little minority partner over the years doing next to nothing. Like, yeah, Danny's been the majority owner, no doubt. But Shar has, obviously, look, he's a big money guy. But he actually played a very prominent role in maybe the single greatest coup that Danny has ever pulled off from a football operation standpoint. Because nothing tops the coup that Danny just engineered here, right here. Not only not being ousted as majority owner, but becoming even more of a majority owner and buying out the disgruntled minority investors at, again, a discounted price. Like, you can't overstate the extent to which Danny has won in this situation. But from a football operation standpoint, there has never been a more stunning moment. And I don't think in the moment there's ever been a happier moment for those of us as Washington football team fans in terms at least of, like, off-season stuff during the Dan Snyder era than Danny bringing back Gibbs in 2004. And it was Shar who got things started when it came to that. Shar made the initial phone call to Joe Gibbs to get him to come back. One more item on this Danny ownership stuff. So Peter King, the longtime NFL insider, now with NBC Sports, every late Sunday night slash early Monday morning, he comes out with this football in America column. And I always take a look at it because you know, whatever you think about Peter King. And, you know, I've mocked him over the years. Like he he was a huge anti-name guy. And, you know, he's done some other stuff too. But, you know, the guy is plugged in. Like, I'm not here to tell you that he's not. And he's obviously covered the NFL forever. So always take a look at it to see what he has, including especially what he has regarding our team. So Peter King did have some stuff in this latest Football Morning in America column about Dan Snyder buying out Shaw Rothman and Smith. Quote, I am told Snyder may take on partners in the future to assuage the massive cash he's had to raise to buy out his partners. End quote. So that is significant because remember, upon the closing of this sale, right, Danny buying out Shaw Rothman and Smith for again, the $875 million with the $450 million debt waiver. Uh, it has been reported that Dan can resell limited stakes in the team though any proceeds will be required to repay the debt. So yes, for now, it's Dan Snyder with about 81% majority ownership of the team, his sister Michelle with about 12.6% ownership of the team, and the mother, Arlette Snyder, with 6.5% ownership of the team. But there may be a diversifying of the ownership group coming up here with Danny taking on some new minority investors. So I thought that was notable from Peter King. The other thing though from Peter was this. Quote, I am also told the team is intended to be passed down to the next generation of Snyder's. End quote. So for those of you who have clung to this thing of maybe Dan Snyder sells one day, unless he is made to sell, and there's been no indication that that's coming. All right. We still have not heard anything regarding full definitive conclusions, last findings of the Beth Wilkinson investigation. but. There has been nothing since that sports junkies item back on March 5th that anything close to Danny being in real trouble with this investigation is coming. Danny ain't going nowhere as Washington football team owner. And, you know, if you're wondering like, well, could this end up being a Jack Kent Cook situation where for whatever reason, the owner doesn't leave the team to his son or doesn't leave the team to his family, at least according to Peter in this column that came out, early Monday morning, that ain't happening. Again, quote, I am also told the team is intended to be passed down to the next generation of Snyders. End quote. Dan and Tanya Snyder have three children, two daughters, Tiffany and Brittany, and a son, Jerry. So barring the unforeseen, the football team is going to be owned by the Snyders for a very, very long time. First off, happy Thanksgiving to everybody. Yes, it has been a happy Thanksgiving for you, Danny, over these last few weeks. So Tuesday finally is the day, the day on which the Nationals 2021 season will be beginning. We got the announcement from Major League Baseball on Sunday night that the Nats would be beginning their 2021 season on Tuesday against the Atlanta Braves at Nationals Park. We didn't know though how long the series with the Braves would be going on for. However, on Monday, the announcement coming from the Nats that they and the Braves will be playing a traditional doubleheader on Wednesday beginning at 12.05 p.m. So three games in two days coming up for the Nationals to begin their season and it's a big three-game series at Nationals Park against the three-time defending National League East champion Atlanta Braves. Of course the big storyline though with the Nats is who's going to be available. The Nats season has been delayed because of this COVID-19 problem. The Nats still have not announced who has contracted COVID-19, who is going to be out to begin the season. We're probably never going to get a formal announcement on that. But of course, you connect the dots on this stuff and you can figure things out. When the Nats put out their season opening roster on Tuesday, we'll certainly get a true handle on who's in and who's out. But on Monday, the Nats conducted a workout at Nationals Park That was open to the media. The workout did not include the following players, okay? Position players, Trey Turner, Josh Bell, Kyle Schwerber, Josh Harrison, Jan Gomes, Alex Avila, and Jordy Mercer. Two starting pitchers, Patrick Corbin and John Lester, and a reliever in Brad Hand. There are a lot of prominent Nats I just read to you on that list. 10 names in total not working out for the Nationals at Nationals Park on Monday. Logic would suggest those 10 are among those who are out for the Nationals. Now, we believe the number is 11 in terms of people who are either dealing with COVID-19, have contracted COVID-19 here recently, or have been deemed as close contacts to those who have contracted COVID-19. It was on Sunday that, That Mike Rizzo in a Zoom press conference announced that one more player and one more staff member had been placed in mandatory quarantine after the D.C. Department of Health deemed them close contacts to those who had previously tested positive for COVID-19. So as of Sunday, the numbers we were aware of were four players have tested positive for COVID-19, seven players and two staffers have been designated as close contacts. So that's a total of 13 guys, including 11 players. There were 10 players we were not seeing working out for the Nats on Monday. So a little bit of confusion here of is someone no longer having to quarantine? You know, did somehow someone get missed in terms of someone who was supposed to be working out but wasn't working out? But here's the bottom line. Uh, you know, there are some key names there, like no Trey Turner. That's a big deal. No Josh Bell, no Kyle Schwerber, no Josh Harrison, no Jan Gomes. Those are five starters for you. You're starting shortstop, first baseman, left fielder, second baseman, and catcher all set to be out to begin the season. You're also out your backup catcher, and Alex Avila. The Nationals are working on making official the signing of Jonathan Lucroy to be their catcher, maybe even their starting catcher for this opening day on Tuesday. You're down two members of your five-man rotation, Corbin and Lester, okay? So, I mean, thank God it's not Max Scherzer or Steven Strasburg, but still, that's not nothing. Your number's three and four starters in terms of prominence here, Corbin and Lester, and Maybe this matters most of all. You're minus your ace reliever. The guy who's set to be your top reliever this season in Brad Hand. Uh, This is not good to begin the season. The Nationals infield alignment during drills on Monday. Ryan Zimmerman was at first. Luis Garcia and Carter Keboom were at second. Hernan Perez and Adrian Sanchez were at shortstop. And Starling Castro was at third base. Out of those guys you're likely to get your starting infield for the Nationals for this game against the Braves on Tuesday. And keep this in mind with the Braves. They're not coming to Nationals Park in a pleasant mood. The Braves got stunningly swept at the Philadelphia Phillies to begin the season. A 3-2 tenning loss on Thursday, a 4 nothing loss on Saturday, a 2-1 loss on Sunday. The Phillies' bullpen, which has been atrocious over the last few years, was lights out over that three-game sweep of the Braves in Philadelphia. So yeah, you're not catching Atlanta in probably the most chipper of moods. Now, uh Davy Martinez spoke at length on Monday. Uh, did admit, like we just outlined, the Nats are very likely to be without five regulars on Tuesday. Again, no Turner, Bell, Schwarber, Harrison, or Gomes. Also said that Luis Garcia probably will be the starting second baseman. And Davey said that in addition to Scherzer starting the opening game on Tuesday, Strasburg will be starting one of the doubleheader games on Wednesday. But the other starter is TBD. Again, you're set to be without both Corbin and Lester. So you're almost certainly looking at Joe Ross being a starter for one of those two games against the Braves. Here's the bottom line with the Nationals. And already there were a lot of questions about the Nats coming into the season. I said this to you on Thursday's podcast last week. I've got real concerns, real worries about the Nationals in this 2021 season. Those worries have only been amplified by this COVID-19 mess and the way the Nationals are set to be starting this season with a depleted roster. But you look at how you're starting things, right? Three games at home against a three-time defending NLE's champion, Atlanta Braves. Then you got three games at the defending World Series champion, Los Angeles Dodgers. Then you got three games at the St. Louis Cardinals. That is a brutal nine-game stretch to begin this season. If you can come out of that stretch four and five or better, I think you take that if you're a Nats fan, okay? Just kind of survive this, okay? Get your regulars back, tread water, and then you can start harvesting your nuts, as Eddie Jordan said years ago during his time as Wizards head coach. Then you can start working on piling up wins, okay? Now, after the nine-game stretch to begin the season here, you get a four-game series at home against the Arizona Diamondbacks and a three-game series at home against the Cardinals. So, you know, like at that point you would feel like, okay, maybe then the Nats can hit their stride. I mean, look, these opening nine games, three against the Braves, three at the Dodgers, three at the Cardinals. I mean, you try to win them. Okay. And if the Nats go six and three, seven and two, great. And it's not like it's impossible to do that. But I think you have to be realistic about what you're looking at here, especially if you're going to be without some of these guys, you know, think about it. Trey Turner, Brad Hand, Patrick Corbin, like you're going to be without these guys for a week, maybe more. Uh, that matters a ton. You're going to be facing the two best teams in the National League to begin the season, okay? The Braves and the Dodgers. And it's not just that those two teams are really good. It's that those teams, especially the Dodgers, are deep, okay? The Dodgers bludgeon you with their depth. The Nats already were not a deep team. That depth has been like halved with this COVID-19 mess that has uh, come out here over the last week or so. So it's a really bad spot for the Nationals to be beginning their season in. It does not doom the Nats, okay? And you know what? If the Nats do do well, like if, if say they go six and three or better over these first nine games, then that can certainly have like a galvanizing effect. And if there's one thing we know about Davey Martinez, right? He's going to be positive. He's going to put a focus on things that are good. And he and Mike Rizzo have been very blunt about this. It's like, this is what we're dealing with. Okay. Okay. Let's figure it out. So if the Nats can figure this out and do well and, you know, stay in the fight and one day at a time and proud of the boys. I'm proud of the boys. Yes, Davey, proud of the boys. Nats are going to need that these upcoming games, right? Proud of the boys, Davey. I'm proud of the boys. If the Nats can actually, dare I say, thrive given this current situation, then all the better for the Nationals in 2021. I'm just thrilled that finally the Nats season is beginning. This whole COVID-19 situation It's tedious. It's laborious. It can be boring. It's not what people follow sports for to hear about, well, who's in quarantine and who isn't in quarantine and who tested positive versus who's a close contact. What you care about is that everyone is doing well. And by the way, everyone has been doing well. There was just one person who was symptomatic and even that person's symptoms were relatively mild and that you get to playing the season. And the season is going to be starting on Tuesday for the Nationals. And it's a big series to get things going. And at the very least, you do have your ace, Max Scherzer, taking the mound and hopefully dominating the Braves to begin what hopefully is a bounce-back season for the Nationals. The latest on the Nationals was not the only COVID-19 related news we had on Monday when it came to D.C. sports. D.C. Mayor Muriel Bowser on Monday in a press conference said that she is not any closer to allowing the Nationals to have more than 5,000 fans per game at Nationals Park and that a waiver from Monumental Sports and Entertainment, the parent company for the Capitals and Wizards, Requesting 10% capacity at Capital One Arena for Capitals and Wizards games is pending with no definitive timeline on when a decision will be made. So as we speak on this Tuesday, it is April 6th. The Caps final regular season home game for this ongoing season is May 8th, about a month away. The Wizards final regular season home game for their ongoing season is May 16th a little more than a month away. Monumental Sports and Entertainment is livid at the mayor for the slow walking of whether the Caps and Wiz can have fans at home games for these ongoing NHL and NBA seasons. Monica Dixon of Monumental Sports and Entertainment on Monday issued a statement that included the following, quote, it appears we will complete the 2021 season with no fans in attendance. We are very disappointed with the district's failure to grant our waiver, as this means Washington, D.C. is on track to be one of the last American cities to host fans at indoor sporting events. We have articulated to district officials the numerous infrastructure upgrades and health and safety protocols we have in place to protect fans and staff. We will continue to work with the district to understand the metrics, we must meet to obtain a waiver that will allow us to operate as safely as possible with a reasonable number of fans in the building, end quote. It wasn't just that statement from Monica Dixon. Ted Leonsis, the Capitals and Wizards owner, tweeted the following on Monday in reaction to what Bowser said. All of us at Monumental Sports and Entertainment are disappointed with the city's failure to grant our waiver allowing fans to attend Capitals and Wizards games this season. Our staff has worked tirelessly putting in place numerous infrastructure upgrades and health and safety protocols to protect fans and staff. End quote. I don't blame Teddy and Monumental for being upset. This is ridiculous what Mayor Bowser is doing. It's one thing to be safe, okay? Everyone should want to be safe and handle the COVID-19 pandemic responsibly and effectively, okay? That should go without saying. So it's one thing to behave in that manner. It's another thing to go overboard. It's another thing to be unreasonable. It's another thing to become infatuated with your power to where you're not gonna let anyone do anything until you say so. And until every little box that you want checked is checked tenfold, okay? And that's where we're at right now with the district. I don't understand where Mayor Bowser is coming from with not allowing anyone to attend Capitals and Wizards games as fans and still not allowing for more than 5,000 fans at Nationals Park. But at least the Nats are going to have 5,000 fans or at least are allowed to have 5,000 fans in the ballpark. The fact that the Caps and Wiz can have zero fans and that that's not changing, to me, is just insane. Look, the Caps, as we speak on this Tuesday, one of just two United States-based NHL teams that are not allowing fans to attend home games. Now, all seven of the NHL's teams based in Canada are not allowing fans to attend home games, but that's Canada. Canada has been ultra restrictive when it comes to the pandemic. But when it comes to the NHL's U.S.-based teams, It's the Capitals and the Chicago Blackhawks. That's it. The only two teams in the country not allowing fans to attend home games. When it comes to the NBA, the Wizards, as we speak on this Tuesday, are one of just eight NBA teams that have yet to allow fans to attend home games. But there's an asterisk that you got to put against that because it has to do with the four California teams. At least two of these teams, the Lakers and the Clippers, are set to start allowing fans to attend home games later this month. And two other teams, Golden State and Sacramento, are allowed to have fans attend home games based on an announcement by Governor Gavin Newsom this past Friday. The Warriors and Kings just had not yet announced when they would be allowing fans to attend home games. But if you go by that and you take the Lakers, Clippers, Warriors, and Kings off that list, the Wizards are just one of four NBA teams not yet allowed to have fans attending home games. What are we doing here? why is this the case? Again, no one is saying to act recklessly. No one is saying to act irresponsibly. What we're saying is this can be done safely. This can be done effectively. Why can't it be done? Why is Mayor Bowser on some power trip here where she's just not allowing anyone, any fans at all, to attend Caps and Wizards games at Capital One. And and look, I know, okay, like how many people really are going to be wanting to attend Wizards games? I hear you on that. But look, the Capitals are having a really good season, okay? And if you're a Caps fan and you behave responsibly, there's no reason you and say, I don't know, a thousand other people can't be attending Caps games at Capital One Arena. There's more than enough room to socially distance, okay? We know by now the protocols you need to abide by, wear your mask, You know, be sanitary, you know, all these different things we've all become accustomed to over the last 12 plus months and like go ahead and do the deed. Open things up. You know, it'd be one thing if the DC area was just getting slammed by the COVID-19 pandemic or if the DC area had done a terrible job when it comes to the COVID-19 pandemic. The opposite is the case. DC, Maryland and Virginia by and large have handled the pandemic well relative to the rest of the country. Our area, our area, as people like to say, the DMV area has done a good job with the virus. If you go to covid.cdc.gov and you look at the data, right? That's become a popular thing to say. Follow the science, follow the data, okay? That's what I'm a big fan of, right? The data. If you listen to this podcast, you know that. The data tells you, again, covid.cdc.gov. The CDC, Washington, D.C.'s seven-day positivity rate for COVID-19 through Friday, and that was the last day for which the data was available when I checked this very early on Tuesday morning, DC's seven-day positivity rate was 3.1. That's good, okay? It's been said you want to be at 5% or less. 3.1 is good, and I'm not here to tell you we're done with the pandemic. We're not. I'm not here to tell you that there hasn't been some leveling off in recent weeks, in terms of the national trend, okay, there has been, and you have to remain vigilant with all this, but we're vaccinating millions of people every day. The end is in sight. We're not there yet. The end cannot come soon enough for all of us, but we're getting there, man. We're getting there. And the DC area, like I said, has done by and large a good job with the pandemic. You know, it's like this distrust of us, this distrust of The citizens of this area, when all the citizens of this area have done is behave well relative to the rest of the country with the pandemic, to say nothing of the whole issue of does locking things down even work as well as people think, right? I mean, what's going on in Texas right now is really interesting. Wide open in Texas is everything. And yet the numbers in Texas continue to be really good. Why is that? How is that? And I don't have the answers for you. But, you know, it's been an impossible thing to ignore. The data doesn't back up the thing of, well, if you just lock down, the more you lock down, the better off you are. Not necessarily with this pandemic. Look at the data, look at the facts. You know, it's funny. You got people who preach following the data and the facts, but those same people don't like to always follow and divide by the data and the facts. So I don't get it. I don't get it. Like I'm all for being safe. I wore a mask around my newborn daughter for the first three months of her life because of the pandemic, even knowing that kids have done well with COVID-19. I didn't want to risk anything with her. Okay. not that I thought I had the virus, but again, you just don't know. So for the first three months of her life, anytime I picked her up, held her, kissed her, it was with a mask. Okay. So I'm not one of these people who's like, oh, this thing is fake. And oh, this thing has been totally overblown. Like no, 500,000 plus people have died in this country. Millions of people have died across the world. This thing should have never happened. It's been a complete travesty what's gone down here. And we need to get to the bottom of how this happened and why this happened. There's no doubt about that. But for the time being, okay, as things are opening up and largely opening up safely and effectively, why Mayor Bowser won't allow fans, any fans at all? I mean, we're not asking for 15,000 plus. We're asking for 10% capacity. Monumental Sports and Entertainment wants 10% capacity at Capital One Arena for Capitals and Wizards games, why we can't have that makes no sense. And I tell you what, when it comes to D.C. right now, uh, D.C. could use something like people being able to attend Capitals and Wizards games. Are you paying attention to what's going on in our nation's capital? OK, Th- this, for whatever reason, doesn't get talked about enough. And yet you could very much argue this is a bigger deal right now than the COVID-19 pandemic in D.C. And that is the homicide rate. Are, are you tracking what's happening in D.C.? Data from the Metropolitan Police Department on Monday showed that homicides in D.C. are up 22% as compared to 2020, for which the Metropolitan Police Department reported the highest number of homicides since 2004. So 2020 was a terrible year for D.C. when it came to homicides. This year, 2021, we're up 22% as compared to 2020. For the Metropolitan Police Department, at least 17 people were shot in D.C. from March 27th to April 3rd. Nine of those victims died for the Metropolitan Police Department. D.C. is falling apart right now, okay? There's a real problem with violence right now in D.C., and it's not exclusive to D.C. because it's actually happening in way too many of our cities in this country. But yeah, man, uh D.C.'s got some real issues, okay? And I know many of you are aware of this already, but uh, if I'm Bowser, I would spend more time focusing on that and less time trying to lock down fans, from watching the Capitals and the Wizards. Again, we can do this safely. This isn't about acting irresponsibly. This is about that which should be allowed. And to me, we're past the point of some fans, not tens of thousands of fans, but of some fans being allowed to attend Capitals and Wizards games. You tell me what you think. Hit me up on Twitter at Algaldi. You can email me, the Algaldi Podcast at Yahoo.com. I can't tell you how much I look forward to the day that we no longer have to talk about COVID-19 and we're done with this thing. But obviously we are not. I hope everyone listening is healthy and safe. And if you've suffered loss, I hope you're doing as well as can be reasonably expected with that loss. But enough is enough with some of what's going on here. And I think it's time to speak out about what Mayor Bowser is doing. All right, uh, Maryland basketball. So <laughs> boy, it's amazing how things can change. We talked on Monday's podcast about the very good weekend that Mark Turgeon had. Friday, multiple reports that Maryland is finalizing a contract extension for the Turge. Saturday, not one, but two prominent transfers announcing their transferring to Maryland. The Georgetown transfer, the big man Kudus Wahab, and Rhode Island transfer, a point guard, Fats Russell. It was a good weekend for Mark Turgeon and Maryland basketball. Then we got what we got on Monday. Daryl Morcel announcing that he is, one, declaring for the NBA draft while maintaining his collegiate eligibility, two, entering his name into the NCAA transfer portal, and three, leaving open the possibility of returning to Maryland. So he's either going pro, transferring to another school, or coming back to Maryland for a second senior season. Daryl Morcel was a senior for this past Maryland basketball season, but as most of you listening know, the NCAA this past October granted an extra year of eligibility to all winter sport athletes due to the COVID-19 pandemic. So yeah, we're not really sure what's gonna be happening with Daryl Morcel. but the fact that especially he has entered his name into the transfer portal isn't good. Uh, that says a lot. Now, Morcel testing the NBA draft waters isn't a shocker, Um, you know, I really hadn't considered, okay, might Marcel want to come back for a second senior season? I actually don't think that many guys are going to take the NCAA up on that offer. Uh, especially if you're a really good player, like even if you're a senior, you're probably going to want to go pro and start making money for what you're doing or, you know, in some cases just make more money for what you're doing. But yeah, with Marcel, it was like, okay, going to the draft. Okay. But then this transfer thing, you're like, whoa, where did that come from? If Daryl Morcel ends up not being on Maryland next season, I mean, personally, as a fan, I had been budgeting for that, but if he's playing elsewhere in college basketball next season, that's going to be a killer. There's no doubt about that. Daryl Marcel just had an excellent season for the Terrapins. He was named the Big Ten Defensive Player of the Year, and that was an award voted on by the Big Ten's 14 head coaches. So this was not, you know, media voting. This was certainly not fan voting. This was the 14 head coaches in the conference voting on the best defensive player in the conference and Marcel got the honor. First player in Maryland basketball history to win a conference defensive player of the year award. Now, the ACC did not have a defensive player of the year award until the 2013-2014 season. So there are plenty of guys in past years who certainly would have been candidates for something like that for Maryland, but Marcel got the honor. Defensive player of the year in the conference, which at least during the regular season was the best conference in college basketball. That may have been disproven with this now concluded NCAA tournament, but such is life. But yeah, Marcel wasn't just a great defensive player either. He was like the heart and soul of Maryland this past season. Marcel was tough. Marcel was gritty. Marcel would do things like have he'd have no business playing well and then he would play well. You know, I think back to this game from Maryland. It was a 73-55 win over Michigan State at Xfinity Center on February 28th. Morcel had not practiced in the week leading up to the game off a week earlier in the Terps' last game, a win at Rutgers dealing with a right shoulder issue that featured the shoulder turgeon having to twice be popped back into place. Morcel in that win over Michigan State, 11 points on 4-5 or five shooting, three rebounds, three assists versus one turnover in 34 minutes as a starter to say nothing of the great defense that he provided. Like that to me was vintage Morcel. He's banged up and yet he posts, he plays well, he contributes to one of the better wins Maryland had in the regular season, that 18-point victory over the Spartans at Xfinity Center. Again, heart and soul was Morcel for this Maryland basketball team. You can say what you want about Turgeon, but he coaches up defense well. Maryland ended up being very good defensively this past season. You know, the defense wasn't great in that second round loss to Alabama and the NCAA tournament. I will grant you that. Uh, but by and large, Maryland was a very good defensive team. Marcel was the best defensive player on that very good defensive team. Turgeon used to talk about this, how it starts with Daryl, the great defense. He provided that. So if he's still playing collegiately next year and it's not for Maryland, that hurts. And that obviously doesn't reflect well on Turgeon. It's amazing right now in college basketball how you now have essentially free agency. The transfer portal has become a college basketball and college football free agency where it's not just that coaches have to recruit guys and then re-recruit them after each season to make sure that the guys don't transfer. It's now that if you're a team and you have holes, you don't just fill those holes via recruiting, you fill those holes via the transfer market. And the transfer market really has become a big deal. And you see guys going from team to team these days. Like Maryland on Saturday gains two guys in Wahab and Russell. Maryland on Monday potentially loses a guy in Morseau. It's like NFL free agency. It's like what we've been talking about with the Washington football team. You signed Ryan Fitzpatrick, William Jackson III, and Curtis Samuel, but you lost Ronald Darby and Kevin Pierre Lewis. You know, that kind of a thing. You gain some, you lose some. That's how it is right now in major college sports with this transfer portal. And Maryland very clearly has been subjected to that phenomenon over the last few days. Is it a net gain if you pick up Wahab and Russell, but lose Morseau? Boy, that's tough. I don't know. Um, I, guess probably yes, just because it's two for one and Wahab is a big man and you really needed size going into next season to say nothing of if Russell improves some of his shooting, you've got yourself a real point guard. And if Eric Ayala's back, you can move him off the ball more. So yeah, I still would say it's a net gain, even if Marcel does leave to play elsewhere in college basketball, but it's not good. You know, it, you, you want to keep Marcel if you can. You know, if Marcel does return to Maryland and neither Eric Ayala nor Aaron Wiggins turns pro, you have those three guys, Dante Scott, a year older, a year wiser, hopefully a year better. You get Wahab, you have Russell, you have some others in the mix. Like that's a loaded team. That, that's a top 15, maybe even top 10 team going into next college basketball season for Turgeon. Even if Marcel doesn't come back to play for Maryland, uh there's going to be real pressure on Turgeon to have a big season next year. Because unlike this past season, you're not going to have low expectations. You're not going to have a roster that, as Turgeon said after that loss to Bama in the second round of the NCAA tournament, was not Final Four caliber. No, you're going to have a Final Four caliber roster for next season. So even with this new extension, there's going to be pressure on Turgeon to have a good season, to make a deep run in the NCAA tournament, to give us finally a true season of high achievement. Mark Turgeon, right, he has made just two sweet 16s over his 10 NCAA tournament appearances as a head coach. 2006 with Wichita State, 2016 with the Terps. That's it. It's time to raise the bar. It's time to achieve more. Uh, but yeah, man, it's crazy right now. There very much is an off season. There very much is a hot stove season for college sports, especially college basketball and college football. And Maryland has experienced that over these last few days. So I don't know if there is such a thing as a gut punch of a loss when you are 14 games below 500, as the Wizards were going into Monday night's game against the Toronto Raptors in Tampa, Florida. Uh, yeah, the Raptors, in case you don't know, playing their home games this season in Tampa due to Canada's restrictive COVID-19 rules. But if there is such a thing as a gut punch loss when you're in the midst of another lost season, the Wizards suffered that on Monday night. A 103-101 loss to the Raptors in Tampa. The Wizards blew a 19-point third quarter lead. The Wizards got beat at the buzzer. Gary Trent Jr., a game-winning 26-foot pull-up three from beyond the top of the arc as time expired in the fourth quarter. Just when you thought the Wizards season couldn't get worse, It got worse on Monday night. The damn Washington Wizards. Yes, Stephen A. Gary Trent Jr. got a defensive rebound in the paint, dribbled up the court, put a hand on Haul Neto, who flopped big time, and then Trent unleashing the three. The game winner, the dagger, as our friend Steve Buckhans would say. But there's no doubt. This game was about the blowing of that lead to a Raptors team, by the way, that isn't good this season. Toronto, even with that win on Monday night, is just 20 and 30 on the year. 10 games below 500. Wizards blew a 19-point third quarter lead. were up 74-55. Then got outscored the rest of the game, 48-27. And the Wizards could not buy a shot in the fourth quarter. Wizards lost the fourth quarter 28-15, went a putrid 4 of 25 from the field in that fourth quarter, including 1 of 10 on threes. Raptors in the fourth quarter, 12 of 23 shooting, including 3 of 8 on threes. You know, the Wizards in this game did many things well. Held the Raptors for the game to 7 of 33 on threes, had 15 offensive rebounds to the Raptors' six. The Wizards defended without fouling the Raptors for the game. Just 11 free throw attempts, went just 8 of 11 on those free throws. Wizards went 15 of 18 on free throws, so you had a decided advantage at the line. And the Wizards were doing all this despite remaining without a number of key guys. Bradley Beal missed a fifth consecutive game due to his right hip contusion. Rui Hachimura did not play for a second consecutive game due to right shoulder tightness. Daniel Gafford did not play for a fourth consecutive game. Due to his severely sprained right ankle, the Wizards remain without Thomas Bryan, who suffered that partial tear of his left ACL back on January 9th. And oh, by the way, the Wizards suffered another injury on Monday night. Robin Lopez, who's been very good off the bench, played for less than nine minutes off the bench due to right quad tightness. You do these things well, you're in position to win. In fact, you're smashing the Raptors in the third quarter, and you end up losing the game. One of the real culprits for the Wizards in that fourth quarter, was Russell Westbrook. Uh, Westbrook did have another triple-double, so that's now 19 triple-doubles for Westbrook this season, extending his Wizards franchise record, 23 points, 14 rebounds, 11 assists versus four turnovers, but Westbrook for the game, just one of six on threes, eight of 19 on twos, and Westbrook in the fourth quarter, one of five on threes, one of six on twos. He had attempted one three over the first three quarters. He then gets three point happy in the fourth quarter and he only makes one of the five tries. Also goes one of six on twos. Westbrook could not make a bucket in that fourth quarter. That was a major issue with the Wizards gacking up that nineteen point third quarter lead. Look, the Wizards had guys who contributed on Monday night. Davies Bertans had a good game in his second game back from injury. Five of eight on three, seventeen points, five rebounds, two steals in just twenty-four minutes, seventeen seconds as a starter. Denny Obdia started again and was pretty good. Two of six on threes, two of four on twos, 12 points, 10 rebounds. Alex Len continued to start and had a decent final line. 13 points, six of 10 shooting, eight rebounds, four blocks, did have three turnovers. Garrison Matthews did something for once coming off the bench. Four of six on three, seventeen 17 points. Is Smith contributed on Monday night. 10 points, five of 12 shooting, and five rebounds off the bench. But in the end, another loss for the Wizards choking away a 19 point third quarter lead, giving up to Gary Trent Jr., the game winning 26 foot pull up three from beyond the top of the arc as time expired. So the Wiz now 17 and 32, 15 games below 500, third worst record in the Eastern Conference, a mere half game ahead of the Orlando Magic, which has the second worst record in the East. And oh, by the way, guess what's next for the Wiz, a game at the Magic Wednesday night at seven. So yes, the battle for who sucks more. Wizards magic will be going down Wednesday night beginning at seven o'clock. Wiz, by the way, now seven games behind the New York Knicks for eighth in the East. One more thing on the Wiz. Uh, this caught my attention. So Troy Brown Jr. traded away to the Chicago Bulls on NBA trade deadline day. A complete bust of a first round pick, at least from a Wizards perspective. Wiz took Brown with the 15th overall pick in the 2018 draft, but the question remains, was Brown's time with the Wizards a bust because of Brown or because of the Wizards, right? Scott Brooks was not a Troy Brown fan. Scott Brooks routinely buried Brown on the Wizards bench. Uh, Scott Brooks had Brown as a DNPCD so often over these last few seasons. Well, Troy Brown Jr. is playing for Billy Donovan and the Bulls, and the Bulls on Sunday beat the mighty Brooklyn Nets 115-107. Brown played for 28 minutes and said the following said that his frustration with the Wizards was that he didn't know what would earn him playing time. Hmm, sounds like a shot at Brooks. Right after Brown joined the Bulls, Donovan sat down with Brown and told him defense would be his path to playing time. Brown was probably like, defense? What's that? My first team never talked about that. Brown praised Donovan for acting on that. So it sounds like, at least so far, and yes, Brown is still in the honeymoon period With Donovan and the Bulls but at least so far Brown is having better communication with his coach perhaps playing better perhaps responding well to that communication and he's actually playing again 28 minutes for Brown in a big win over the Nets on Sunday this unquestionably is something to track if you're like me and a Wizards fan uh, what ends up happening with Troy Brown Jr. and the Bulls? You know, the Wizards got back right in that three-way trade. They dealt away Brown and Mo Wagner, but got back Daniel Gafford and Chandler Hutchison, himself a bust for the Bulls as a first-round pick. We'll see what happens with Hutchison. Uh, Gafford, I think, is promising, but obviously he's out now with that severely sprained right ankle. But it matters a lot what ends up happening uh, with Wagner, yes, but more so with Brown. Did the Wizards part too quickly with a guy who, again, they spent a number 15 overall pick on, Or did they do what they needed to do because they made the wrong choice in what was, remember, the final first-round selection for Ernie Grenfell as Wizards president? But yeah, man, uh, there's no doubt. Scott Brooks was not a Troy Brown fan. I think the feeling is mutual. And Brown can prove Brooks wrong by thriving with the Bulls. Or Brown can validate Brooks, again, routinely having Troy Brown Jr. as a DNPCD. Going to be interesting to see how Troy Brown Jr. ultimately does with the Bulls. And we will talk some Orioles before we call it a show on this Tuesday installment of the Al Galdi podcast. Like I said in the opening segment, the O's on Monday night, like Gonzaga in the national championship game on Monday night, humbled and humbled big time. A 7 nothing loss for the O's at the New York Yankees on Monday evening in game one of a three-game series. You're coming off the glorious season opening sweep at the Boston Red Sox, you're maybe feeling yourself just a little bit. I mean, you know the Orioles are still a rebuilding team and probably not going to be very good once again in 2021, but at least maybe you get off to a fun start and no, like a bucket of cold water poured over your head, you're reminded of what the O's are and that is not a very good team. 7 nothing, the final on Monday evening. Off a string of decent to great starts to begin the season. You know, John Means was lights out in that Game 1 win at the Red Sox last Friday afternoon. You at least got decent outings from Matt Harvey and Bruce Zimmerman, all things considered, in Games 2 and 3. Jorge Lopez on Monday evening struggled and struggled big time. Four runs in four and two-thirds innings on three hits, a homer, and two singles, and three walks. Did have five strikeouts, but he threw just 41 of his 75 pitches for strikes. And then the thing that was really the thing in that three-game sweep at the Red Sox became a problem, and that was the Orioles' bullpen. It is largely a no-name bullpen, okay? You got to really be an O's fan to know who some of these people are. Sean Armstrong and Paul Fry were the first two relievers utilized by manager Brandon Hyde on Monday evening. Armstrong and Fry uh, got fried, combined to allow three runs and record just two outs, Armstrong relieved Lopez in the bottom of the fifth with the bases loaded in two outs, promptly gave up a two out run scoring walk to Aaron Hicks, and then came the big blow. A two out grand slam by John Carlos Stanton to left center to cap a five run Yankees fifth. And the granny was a bomb. 471 projected feet for StatCast. Look, this is what Stanton can do. This is what the Yankees do, all right, with Stanton and Aaron Judge and Glaber Torres. The Yankees will bludgeon you as they have bludgeoned the Orioles many times in recent years, but that grand slam said it all. Stanton smashing that pitch to left center and uh, dooming the Orioles at that point with, again, the capping of the five-run Yankees fifth. Orioles offense did next to nothing. uh, No runs, just four hits, all singles, two walks, 13 strikeouts. is also putting Austin Hayes on the 10-day injured list on Monday with a right hamstring strain that was suffered in that 11-3 win at the Red Sox on Sunday afternoon. So three and O now is three and one, and you just hope that it doesn't unravel <laughs> in in brutal, bloody fashion here uh, over these next few games. We'll see. We'll see. Um, it has not been pretty in recent seasons for the Orioles against the Yankees but look like we all know like I certainly have said it ain't about wins and losses right now with the O's it is pain now for pleasure later as the total tank job of a rebuild continues for this team game two at the Yankees 635 on Tuesday evening Dean Kramer a guy who you want to see have a good season one of these young Orioles arms going to be taking on maybe slash probably the best starting pitcher in the American League in Garrett Cole all right, that will do it for you and me for now. Keep the feedback coming, as I always say, and I mean it because you guys help out. Hit me up on Twitter at Al You can email me to the at Yahoo.com. Let people know in case they do not know about this podcast, your alternative to local sports radio, the DC Sports Express. This is not some pod that comes out once in a while. Every weekday morning, out by 5 a.m., we talk Washington football team, Nationals, Capitals, Wizards, Maryland, Georgetown, etc. We ride together every weekday on this podcast. It's great to have you on board. I have something special planned for you for Wednesday's podcast regarding the Washington football team. I will not spoil it. I will not jinx it. I will just simply let you know uh, something good will be in store for you on Wednesday's podcast. Have a great rest of your Tuesday. I'll talk to you on Wednesday. I'm proud of your voice.